If you would open up to the book of Exodus, chapter 33 is where we find ourselves this morning, moving along through the book. If you'll notice, I had skipped over several chapters uh, beginning last week, and I intend to go back to those uh, at some point uh, in the near future. But for today, the word of the Lord for us is in Exodus 33. And I want to begin by reading just one verse, verse 15. And so if you would, find your place there. And this is the word of the Lord for his people this morning. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Pray with me. Father, we pray that you would inhabit our praises, engage our minds and our hearts today. We ask in the name of Jesus and God's people said, amen. I want to begin by asking you this simple question. What if the Lord God audibly spoke to you and he promised you all the blessings that life could give? He would give you a, not a good marriage, but he'd give you a great marriage. He'd not give you just some wealth, but he'd give you great wealth. He wouldn't just give you an okay sense of well-being and health, but, but he would make you healthy all the days of your life. But the catch is that if you accept that promise, if you accept those good gifts from the author of all the great gifts, if you accept those, his presence will not be with you in the midst of any of those things. In the midst of your great marriage, in the midst of your great wealth, in the midst of your great health, you would have all of those things, but in so doing, you would forfeit his presence in your life. The question that is before us today is just that. Where the Lord God promised his people, I will send you to the land that I promised to send you to. And I will take care of your families and I will give you fortune and I will give you health, but I will not go with you. And so we pick up as we have moved through this book. Now, just as a reminder over the past several weeks, all the way back in Exodus chapter 20, Moses goes up to the mountain to get the the law, to get the 10 commandments. And Moses stays up on top of that mountain for quite a long time. And so the people of God, Moses's people, they become afraid. They, they become scared. They feel alone. They feel vulnerable. And so their answer to those feelings in their midst was, how about since Moses has disappeared and God is not speaking to us, let us create our own God for us to worship and maybe he will speak to us. And so they give Aaron all of their fine jewelry and he fashions a calf and he throws the gold into the fire and out comes this God that the Israelites began to worship. And this is the story of Exodus 32 that we read last week. But then we saw that as Moses comes down to the mountain, as God says, Moses, this is what your people are doing. Moses comes down and he speaks directly and even harshly to his people. And then it says, chapter 32 ends with this statement, then the Lord afflicted his people with a plague. And he punishes them for their sin. 
He punishes them for the idolatry that they had come up with, for the idols that they had fashioned. He, he is harsh and, and he is swift in his judgment in this moment. And then comes Exodus 33, where let's pick up beginning in verse 1. And notice it says, the Lord then says to Moses after the plague comes and he punishes his people and they are under his heavy hand of discipline, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob saying, to your offspring, I will give it. And I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Go up to a land with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you. And one of the first things that we notice beginning in chapter 33 is that the Hebrews were under the discipline of the Lord in this moment. And we know that because beginning in verse one, when he says, depart and go up from here, he says, you and the people. Using an article there that exists where prior to that, he had said, my people. You take my people into the land that I have promised, but, but this time it is simply a, a distance that God has created from his people because they are under his chastisement. They are under his judgment. You are to go from here, you and the people, and I will give you all of the things that I said that I was going to give you. I will give you all the things that, that I foretold in the covenant, all of the things that, that I promised, for I am not a God who, who dishonors my word, and I will drive out these peoples from the land that, that is ultimately mine, and I will give it to you, this land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go among you. That last phrase indicating that the people of God in this moment were under the discipline of God. He was upset with them. And rightfully so, for in just a matter of, of months, they had begun to fashion and bring the old gods out of Egypt into the land that God had promised. And so God afflicts them and he, and he punished them severely and, and harshly. And then notice what he says after he states, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way for you are a stiff necked people. And what he means by that phrase uh, illustrated, you ever seen a, a horse trainer or horse owner try to, to bring a horse into a trailer or try to steer cattle in a certain direction? They become difficult at time to, to work with or perhaps you've ever tried to herd uh, 50 or so cats in one direction. It is almost impossible to do those things. And he just says, you are just like those animals. You are a stiff necked people. You are stubborn in all your ways. You, you don't listen though you say that you do. I will consume you if on the way for you are this people. For when the people, verse four, heard this disastrous word, it says they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are this stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I shall go up among you, I, I would consume you. So now, 
Take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. These ornaments were a symbol still of the things that they had brought out of the land of Egypt. They were a symbol of what they had assumed they had acquired that was their own wealth and their own ability. And he says, strip those things down so that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of all the ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now, one thing that I want you to notice in this moment is this last little phrase where he says, from Mount Horeb onward. And what this indicates that we see as we read ahead in the book of Exodus, that this was perhaps the the turning point and the change in the life of the Hebrews. For it says from this moment onward, all the way into the promised land, we won't put these ornamentations back on. We won't wear this jewelry that signifies our own ability and and sovereignty, if you will, that, that points back to the land that we came from. But rather, we in this moment will walk humbly with you. What this is symbolic of in this moment is a change of heart or what we would simply identify as true repentance that takes place in the life of the Hebrews. Meaning that they have finally began to understand what it is that God has been asking of them and and what it is that God desires. And so they turn from from their old ways and and begin to walk in a new direction. They, They shed the chains and the bondage that they had brought with them, not necessarily that God had delivered them from in the land of Egypt. They stripped themselves of all of these things. And now verse 7 Moses used to take the tent and he would pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And whenever Moses went into the tent, all the people, they would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and they would watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. And when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. One important thing that We must notice in the midst of this, when God gives the instructions prior to chapter 32 on the building of the tabernacle, he gives a very specific and and pointed instruction that the tabernacle was to be built and was to be the center inside the camp. So that all who wanted to to come and to worship the Lord their God could go to the center of the camp, inside the camp. But yet in chapter 32, we notice that God changes his instruction in the life of the Hebrews. He says, no, you're not going to put the tent of meeting inside the camp, but rather outside the camp. And the reason why you're going to do this is because my camp, my people are full still of sin. Not the people outside, but what God is chiefly concerned with in in 33, in this moment, he is concerned with the purity and the integrity of his people, that his people would walk rightly before him, confessing sin in humility, prostrated before him. And so God says, I won't put my presence inside the camp of sin, but rather Moses, you set it up on the outside. And I think this speaks to something larger within our culture that that maybe perhaps we miss from time to time. 
You see, I think too often the church is concerned about the sin that is outside the camp when rather what we need to be concerned with is the sin inside our own camp. And that oftentimes the reason we don't encounter the presence and the holiness of God is because of the sin that is deep within our own hearts, not the sin that is in our neighbor down the street or what we see in other states and cities and countries, but rather what we see right here in our own hearts. This is what God is the most concerned about. And so he tells Moses, You pitch the tent and you put it outside of the camp. And then notice what it says in verse seven, and everyone who sought the Lord would have to go out to meet him. Those who were hungry for the Lord, who were seeking and and thirsting after righteousness would then go outside to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And so Moses would, would go in there as their mediator. And so he would speak to God and God would speak to him. And then it says this pillar of cloud would descend and, and it would stand at the entrance. What theologians call this is a theopony a visible manifestation of the invisible God. We saw this in the burning bush as God begins to speak. And so he descends in this cloud and and he begins to speak to Moses, verse 10. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and they would worship each at his own tent door, but they wouldn't dare approach the tent. Thus, verse 11, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Moses spoke to God face to face as a man speaks to his friend. What this communicates in this moment is the intimacy and the relationship that Moses had with his God that he could talk with him and and speak to him and, and God would speak back and in turn, they would have this relationship. God was still God and Moses was still certainly his servant, but yet in this moment, as a man speaks to his friend, when Moses turned again into the camp, notice it says his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man would not depart from the tent. I found this one of the most striking statements in all of chapter 33. It reminded me of when David says elsewhere in Psalm 27, 4, one thing I have asked the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To be in his presence, to feel his presence and to know his presence. We ask the question, obviously, then what actually is the presence of God? For many to say God is with us, his presence is with us, means that we were successful in some sort of venture. That we got the numbers or the people in the pew or they came to the event or, or we saw God work in some way. We make statements like God be with you and, and we say that we hope his presence is with you and, and, and we hope that it works out for you or, or using statements like God's speed, whatever in the world that actually means. But we say it indicating, thinking we understand what the presence of God actually means. Some think that when we encounter the presence of God, it's, it's some strange feeling that we had. 
some emotion that was, that was elicited. Uh, and then we had this feeling and we can remember back to those things. It's when we got goosebumps, when, when Annika comes up and she sings her song and, and we have this moving place deep within our hearts. The presence of God was there. Maybe, but maybe not. Maybe the presence of God is, is something quite more than that. Maybe it's more than just a, a personal preference or, or just an experience that we have uh, one time, but, but rather I would propose to define it this way, that what Joshua was experiencing, what Moses experienced, the presence of God is a sense of his immense love and his greatness and his holiness and his power. It's a sense of those things. Perhaps maybe one of the greatest minds that North America has ever produced, the pastor theologian, though he was not perfect, Jonathan Edwards, when talking about and describing the presence of God in his life, listen to what Jonathan says. Sometimes only mentioning a single word of the scripture will cause my heart to burn within me. Only seeing the name of Christ or, or some attribute that, that is brought up will suddenly make my heart burn for him. And God suddenly appears glorious to me, making me have exalting thoughts of who he is. An immense sense of how great God is, how powerful he is and, and wonderful he is and how holy he is. But you see, friend, we don't get those things apart from his actual word that he has revealed himself through. And the only way that we experience the presence of God, we, we certainly can say that we never experience it apart from the word of God and contrary to the word of God. As one pastor put it, he says, the purpose of the written word is to lead us to the living word. Jesus. The purpose of the written word is to lead us to the living word, Jesus. You see, friends, this morning, if you read the word of God without hearing from the God of the word, you're going to end up spiritually bloated. You're going to miss his presence altogether. You're going to have facts and information certainly about him, but facts and information and knowledge about God don't equate to an actual relationship with God. Verse 12 goes on, and Moses said to the Lord, see to you, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. This is that conversation where it says that God spoke to Moses as a friend, and now Moses begins, I think, to, to, to speak to God almost as an equal, where he says, listen, God, full of all knowledge and doesn't forget, you're the one that told me these things. See, you were the one that said to me, do this and bring these people up, but you have not shown me whom you will send to me as if God didn't already know that. Therefore, verse 13, if I have found favor in your sight, would you please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight, O oh God. Consider too that this nation is your people. 
And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And then he says to him, Moses, back to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. You see, I think that one of the chief mistakes that churches make over time is that we tend to forget that one of his purposes in our life for our church is that we would display his presence. I think far too often we get enamored, which rightfully so, on on portraying facts and information and knowledge and, and defending the faith and all of those things are certainly important. But the reason why we labor for those things, the reason why we want to see people far from God come to know him is so that one day at the marriage supper of the lamb, every nation, tribe, and tongue will bow down before our holy God and they will worship him in his presence, in front of him, at his feet, prostrate before him. That it's not just about knowledge and the tendency is to push people to to want to to learn classroom facts and learning facts. and, And those things are certainly important, but our churches, listen to me, they are not classrooms, but rather we are a sanctuary for the holy God. And we have been called to display his presence in all that we do, intimating that we have a relationship with him and that we're walking with him faithfully and we're doing the things that he has said. When Moses says, please now show me your ways that I may have favor in your sight, you do not have favor in his sight apart from a relationship with him. Walking deeply with him and and being intimate with him. To illustrate it another way, can you imagine if you came up to me and you said, Drew, can you, can you tell me about your wife, Haley? And I said, sure, you know, uh, her legal name is uh, Haley Marie Zinkgraf, born of good German and Irish stock. Her doctor who delivered her, his, his name was Fred. Her first boyfriend's name, it was Nick. And in college, she majored in communication. She has a scar just above her left knee. And you may say, well, that's impressive, Drew. You know your, your wife well. I don't think that's really what she intended to ask. That's completely different. If you come up and ask me, hey, Drew, would you tell me about your wife? And, and I tell you how much I enjoy just going home from work and just being around her. If I told you just how much I enjoy just, just coming home and, and just sitting with her, how, how Haley always seems to know just what to say in the right time when whether I'm down or, or need encouragement, how I know that, that she really loves me and how I know how she really likes to be loved. That's a knowledge beyond just factual information, though those things are facts. What they point to is a, is a deeper intimacy and a, and a relationship that exists there. You see, friends, there is a difference in knowing about and knowing and loving and desiring the thing that we pursue. This is at the heart of our faith, is union with Christ communing with him, fellowshipping with him, being in his presence. I want to be careful for the theologians out here and the teachers out here who, who are all about the facts and the knowledge. I, I want to be careful that I don't drive too much of a, a wedge in between knowing the Bible and knowing God. They, they work together in a symbiotic relationship because the only way to really know God is, is to know his word. 
And I don't think it's appropriate to, to drive a hard wedge between those things. But, but what I want to caution us, us about a people is I, we want to be full of facts, not so that we can be puffed up with pride, but so that those facts and that knowledge can compel us to a deeper relationship with him. That it moves us. I remember it was my second semester in seminary. I was in my second semester of Greek and second semester of systematic. I had a philosophy class that was difficult and I had only one easy class out of about 12 or 15 hours. And I remember coming home one day and I'd been studying Greek vocab over and over and over and over again. And I thought to myself in that moment, Lord, what is the point of all of this? It is great that I know Greek words and can parse them and can remember the charts. But, but if that's the only thing that I can do, what I found myself was drying up spiritually in those moments because I was neglecting my relationship with him to the extent that all I wanted was knowledge and the degree. And so the Lord changed my heart and he, and he moved me in a different direction. Verse 16, the text continues on and he says, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, you and your people? Is it not going, you're going with us so that we are distinct and I your people from every other people on the face of the earth? I love what Moses says here because I think it's very informative for the church today. Listen, we cannot compete with the tactics of the world. They will out entertain us. They will outspend us. They will out our creativity in every which way. We cannot compete with the things of this world. But there is one thing. There is one thing that God has given his church that the world cannot offer to anyone else. Do you know what that is? He's given us his presence. For he says, in this moment, if you don't go with us, if you are not with us, your presence is not with us in the midst of it, that we worship you, are we then not distinct from anyone? But we are just like all of the, of the people that you listed. If, if you don't go, if you don't meet with us, God, then what's the point? And so then the Lord said to Moses, verse 17, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you, Moses, have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses says, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, Moses, you cannot see my face, for if a man shall see me and live... And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by, by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft on the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Signifying to Moses in that moment that God hears him. He understands him. And God in that moment is a friend to Moses, holy and distinct from Moses, but a friend to Moses, meeting the need and the desire of, of Moses' heart for God to, to go with his people in his presence, that they would seek him and walk humbly with him. And God says, I will do this thing. 
Friend, can I tell you that Travis Avenue Baptist Church, 800 Westbury Street in Fort Worth, Texas, does not have the presence of God in its life as the heartbeat of our pursuit in all things, that he would be with us. And friend, we are no different than the country club down the street to my right and the, the one south of here and the one north of here. We're no better than the civics club that exists in, in downtown or south side of Fort Worth or the, the commerce group. We're no different than any of those groups. That without the presence of God in our lives, in the midst of our church, and what's the point? The way that we seek that presence is not through music style or types of worship. It's not through personal preferences on what we should do this and what kind of programming we should do on that. It's, it's simply one thing. That as we seek the presence of God, how we do that and commune with him as we, as a people, we get on our knees and we lay on our faces and we commune with him in a posture of prayer. Because it is in the posture of prayer that we demonstrate our own need for him, our humility before him. Many of you are familiar with the story in 1857 in downtown Manhattan of Jeremiah Lampierre. He was hired by a local church to visit the local neighborhood and to bring people to Christ. And, and he began to walk and to visit and became very discouraged and became very frustrated. And when he was frustrated, he began to turn to prayer. And it was in the, the posture of prayer that he began to experience for himself the presence of God in his life. As he began to humble himself before him. And so he goes to his church and he goes before his elders and he says, listen, I'd like to have a prayer meeting every Wednesday at noon. And so he put this sign out and he began to invite people to come in. And, and uh, he said, listen, in this meeting, there's going to be no preaching. There's going to be no sermon. There's going to be no music style or, or song. There's going to be no proselytizing. And maybe best of all, there will be no pastor or minister present. We are just going to pray as God's people. Can I have the room, elders? And they said yes. And first Wednesday, six people showed up. Second Wednesday, about 20 showed up. The third Wednesday, about 40 showed up. And, and somebody said, hey, why can't we do this every day at lunch? And, and two months later, the whole Christian education wing was filled with hundreds of people every day at noon. They started other prayer meetings at noon all across the town and the city. And pretty soon, every theater and every church was filled with men and with women praying. Reporters lined up and they estimated at the time that close to 10,000 people were praying every day in lower Manhattan. Churches began having evening services and people started coming and, and they started receiving Christ night after night. And in a nine month period, because of this one man in 1857, they estimate that nearly 50,000 people were converted and joined the church in New York City. 50,000. When the population was about 800,000, what that means is one in every 16 people were converted in about a nine to 10 month period in that city. Now this little instance of revival here in that moment, it, it began to spread throughout Europe and it eventually got to Ireland and they just started to meet and, and started a prayer meeting in the next three years in the country of Ireland because of this one man in 1857, in the next three years, 100 of the 300,000 people in Ireland converted and joined the church. A third of the population of Ireland began to get, they got saved and they joined the church all because of one man who wanted to practice the presence of of God and his life and before other people.
Friends, can I tell you, I, I want to see one day within my lifetime what happened in New York City in 1857, what happened all across Europe, what happened all across the country of Ireland. Why couldn't it happen here and begin in Fort Worth, Texas? Why, why not here? Why, why not now? It starts with a committed group of people, maybe just one of you or two that say, we're gonna be serious about practicing the presence of God in our life, just as Moses did, just as Jeremiah Lampierre did.